As we get into God's word today, I want to invite you to take your Bible, if you have it with you, and open it up to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 is uh, where we're going to be today. And before we get there, I, uh, I just want to acknowledge a group. I just got a little text message on my phone that we have some special guests in our church today. So I guess we have uh, a gentleman named Sean Masterson. Is uh, Sean here? All right, Sean, who has brought with him a group of 17 from Cedar Valley Bible Church heading to West Virginia to do a mission trip. Awesome. And uh, you served with one of our staff members, Bill Letcher, on staff previously. And so today you guys just decided to come and visit our church on your way. That's awesome. Church family, can we welcome them? That's great. Really glad that you guys are here today. That's wonderful. Um, Now, Acts 21, before we get into it, I want to uh, just share a quick personal story with you guys. So uh, it's baseball season. And uh, some people love baseball. Some people hate baseball. My two sons love baseball, okay? They have, they've played rec ball, summer ball at uh, BCAA, the Beaver Creek Athletic Association for many years. Uh, we're in it again this year. Well, a couple years ago, my son Johnny was um, batting and he got hit by a pitch while he was batting and he really like busted and broke one of his fingers on his hand and uh, he couldn't swing a bat very well. He couldn't play and, and he was out of some games and uh, eventually he made it back in and his coach hyped it up and they made a big deal when Johnny came back to play. And it was this, this awesome thing. Well, that was a couple years ago. Johnny was like nine. Now he's 11. Fast forward to this baseball season. It's one of the first games of the year. Johnny has that same coach again, some of the same teammates. A first games, Johnny, one of the first games, Johnny gets up to bat. The pitcher fires the ball in and you can guess what happens. The ball hits him again, right in the thumb, breaks his thumb, Okay. So for the past month or so, you've, you know, Johnny's had this cast and uh, we call him John Thumb and he runs around, you know, so John Thumb's been running around and you've probably seen him in the church. He's probably asked you to sign his cast if you've seen him running around. Well, this past week, he finally got his cast off, which meant he could start playing games again, playing ball again. And so uh, yesterday he got to, you know, go back to his first, first ball game in a while. So the game is like, it's a close game. It's a super intense game. Um, I mean, really intense. Players are getting kicked out of this game. Parents are getting kicked out of this game. Coaches are getting kicked out of this game. Not an exaggeration. This is rec league baseball, okay? We're talking like 11 and 12-year-olds. It was really intense. Well, the game's close. It's tied. They go into extra innings. Johnny's team's up to bat. The bases get loaded. Johnny comes up to bat, okay? So Johnny comes up, pitcher winds up, gets ready, fires the ball in. Guess what happens? He didn't get hit in the thumb with the ball. It was all good, okay? I knew you guys would think that. So Johnny, you know, he's up there. He's a little bit skittish about swinging the bat. He doesn't want to get hit, but he swings. Boom, and he hits this great hit. And he, uh, you know, hits this great liner out into the outfield, knocks in a couple of runs, you know, and like me as his dad, I'm like super like proud dad moment. But then I realized, oh, this might embarrass my son, so I better chill out. And so I started to get quiet. But then I started realizing like the people around me were going nuts. Like they were going crazy. They're screaming for Johnny. People are like all hyped up. And, you know, and here's the thing. Here's the question. Why was it such a big moment? What made it such a big deal? Here's what made it such a big deal. It it was a big deal because of Johnny's previously broken thumb, right? If he hadn't broken his thumb and been nervous about getting up there to bat, like it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But here's my point. Sometimes pain can give you a platform 
that you wouldn't otherwise have. Okay? Sometimes pain can give you a platform that you wouldn't otherwise have. And in our biblical text today, Acts 21, we're going to see that sometimes God gives us a painful path in order to give you a ministry platform that you wouldn't otherwise have. Sometimes God gives you a painful path to provide for you a ministry platform that you wouldn't otherwise have. Today, we're going to continue on in our study in the book of Acts. We're coming close to the tail end of the book of Acts. Uh, We have covered a lot in this historical narrative about the early church. Uh, You know, by the time we get to this point in the story, Jesus has resurrected from the grave. Uh, He has commissioned his disciples out to be his witnesses in the world. They have taken the gospel from the Jews in Jerusalem out to the Gentile parts of the world. The Gentile parts of the world are being reached mainly through the Apostle Paul, who has taken three major missionary journeys. We come in today to Acts 21 on the tail end of his third missionary journey. He has visited the churches in regions like Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece and other areas. And now he's making his way back to Jerusalem. He's coming back to Jerusalem because he wants to preach the gospel to his fellow Jews there. And he wants to drop off an offering that he had been collecting, a financial offering to uh, give for benevolence to the church in Jerusalem. But here's what I want you to keep in mind. What did we read about back in Acts chapter 19 and 20? It was that God called Paul to go back to Jerusalem. But Paul said, the Holy Spirit tells me that when I go, hardship awaits. Hardship awaits. In other words, God put Paul on the painful path. God called him there. So we're going to pick up in chapter 21 with Paul coming into Jerusalem on his painful path. We're going to cover today verses 17 through 40. I'm just going to teach through those verse by verse, and we're going to bring it home with some personal application at the end, and all of our application will tie in to that big idea that I mentioned earlier, which is that God often uses our painful path to make a ministry platform. All right? Now, before we even get into the text, let me just say, pastorally speaking, as I was preparing, the Lord really put some of you families on my heart because I know that some of you are walking the painful path right now. These are dark days for some of you. And I know that some of you have opened up and shared about the heavy load that you've been carrying. Some of you, you carry it quietly and haven't made many people aware. And and I wouldn't have any idea what you're going through. But here's what I do know. I know that God has given us his word to help us through seasons like the painful paths. And he's given us this portion of his word, I believe, to encourage your hearts today, especially if you're walking down the road of pain. So let's see what the Lord has for us. Let's pick up in verse 17. Paul and his missionary team are coming into Jerusalem at the end of their third missionary journey. It says in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So when he says the brothers, he's talking about the Jews in Jerusalem who had believed in Jesus Christ as Messiah. The brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So the scripture mentions James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Both of them shared Mary as their mother. James had Joseph as his father. This is James who also wrote the book of James that you have in your New Testament. This is James. He He was not one of the original 12 disciples but he eventually became a believer in his brother and eventually then became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. If you remember back in Acts chapter 15, 
when we read about the Jerusalem Council, it was headed up by a man named James. This is the same James. He's the leader among the elders in Jerusalem who all, these are likely the same men who met with Paul back at the Jerusalem Council. So they're meeting together here. Verse 19 says, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul says, guys, last time I saw you was the Jerusalem Council. It's been seven years since then. Let me tell you what's gone on. And he recounts to them all the things that God had done, the things we've been reading about in chapter 16 through 20, about how in Philippi, God saved Lydia and her household, and God delivered Paul and Silas from the, from the, uh, the, the prison, and then saved the prison guard, and then saved that man's household, and started a church there in Philippi. About how God um, allowed Paul to preach in Thessalonica for less than a month, but in that month, they saw many people come to faith in Jesus in Thessalonica. About how in Berea, the Greek women, the Gentile women uh, of high standing had become believers. About how um, in Areopagus in Athens, where Paul preached in, to the people who were worshiping the unknown God, and many of them became believers. We read about that in Acts 17. How about the ministry in Corinth that Paul has had, where he almost got mobbed by the Jews, but the Greek man named Gallio stepped in and uh, kind of saved the day and allowed Paul to keep preaching, and many Corinthian Gentiles believed. And then he kept, keeps telling these Jewish elders, hey, I just came back from ministry in Ephesus in Asia Minor, where people were worshiping the goddess Artemis, and, and they turned from their idolatry to worship the Lord, and, and they started to... Uh, publicly burn their witchcraft books and things. And he's sharing with them all these mighty works that God had been doing among the Gentiles. In verse 20, we see the response of the Jerusalem elders. Verse 20 says, when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So the Jewish elders praise the Lord for God's work among the Gentiles. And then they start to say to Paul, now look, there are thousands of Jewish believers here who have also come to believe in Jesus, which blows my mind because just 25 years prior to this, this is the same city where the Jews were crying out for Christ's crucifixion. Now thousands of them have believed upon him. But as nice as it was that there were thousands that had believed, there were many more thousands who had not yet believed. And James tells, Paul's about, uh, tells Paul about them and he, and he says, they are all zealous for the law. Verse 21, and they have been told about you. And that you, Paul, teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. What are we going to do, Paul? These Jews who are zealous for the law, they're going to find out you're here and they don't like you. Because you keep telling Jews that, they, they think you're telling the Jews that they can disregard Moses and disregard laws like circumcision and things. But here's the thing. Paul never carried himself in such a way to be um, disrespectful towards the Jews or the Jewish law. He taught, that, he taught the Jews and the Gentiles that the Jewish law did not need to be followed for salvation. But what do we see in the life of Paul? He did his best to love his fellow Jews. He himself was a Jew. He wanted to remove stumbling blocks that would prevent him from ministering to them. So remember, he when he picked up Timothy and said, come join me on my missionary journeys, he had this grown man named Timothy get circumcised so that it wouldn't be a stumbling block to the Jews that they were going to minister to. So James and the elders tell Paul that the Jewish community is accusing him of disregarding the law of Moses. That's going to be a problem when they find out Paul's in town. So look at verse 23. We'll see the solution that these Jerusalem elders propose. 
They say, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Remember, those were the contents of the letter that they landed on at the Jerusalem Council for Paul to give to the Gentile believers. So Paul listens to them, verse 26, and it says, Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering would be presented for each one of them. So there's a bunch of weird stuff right here, right? You have this vow and it has something to do with a haircut and something about this haircut is going to make people cool with Paul. And also there's purification days and other offerings that need to be made, which all probably sounds kind of strange to us, especially if you're new to the Bible. But in the Jewish community, they would have been very familiar with all of these things because the Jews would participate in something called a Nazarite vow. And you can read all about that in the book of Numbers in your Old Testament, chapter six. But basically, when somebody took a Nazarite vow, when a Jew took a Nazarite vow, they were committing themselves to the work of the Lord for a designated period of time. And they would refrain from certain things while they were on that Nazarite vow. They would, they would not uh, drink wine. They would avoid grapes and raisins. They would not cut their hair. They'd stay away from dead bodies and things like that. And when the time of the vow was complete, there were some things that needed to be done. And so that included some things like shaving your head. Um, you had to take the, the shaved hair to the priest in the temple and he would burn it on the altar along with some other offerings and sacrifices that you would bring um, after your purification days were done. So there was a designated amount of time that were known as purification days. When those were complete, you could take your offering into the priest at the temple. Now, that's the Nazarite vow. So they're saying, Paul, join in with these guys who are fulfilling their Nazarite vow. Paul, you know, that will show that you don't disregard the Jewish law. It'll win over the crowds. Now, let me just tell you, there's a lot of debate about this. Paul decides to join in and do this with these guys. Some theologians and commentators will say, Paul made a huge mistake. Other people will say, no, that was fine what Paul did. Those who say it was fine, you know, they're going to say, this is Paul uh, removing stumbling blocks that weren't essential to salvation um, in order to, you know, win over the Jews. Other people are going to say, no, Paul, uh, he really kind of, he, he showed some sympathy. He, uh, he gave credence to the Jewish law by participating in this, so he shouldn't have done it. So just as a side note, I personally think it was fine for, fa- for Paul to participate in this because uh, this, these things that he's participating in here, he's not doing them in order to become justified in God's sight or to become accepted by God. He's doing them in order to remove stumbling blocks from the Jewish crowd to whom he wanted to preach the gospel. It's reminiscent to me of what Paul would write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 19 through 23, where Paul says, you know, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, 
so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So I believe that Paul's joining with these men who are under the Nazarite vow. I believe this is him becoming like a Jew to win the Jews. And that's why he was participating in this ceremony. Now, that being said, let's continue on in verse 27 and see what happens. When the seven days were almost completed, again, these are the seven days of purification um, that would allow him to make his sacrifice in the temple. It says that the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and, and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So again, everywhere Paul goes, man, the Jews rise up against him, right? And here, it says that there were some of the Jews from Asia who did this. Now, Asia is a good, Asia Minor is what that's referring to. That's a good distance from Jerusalem. Why were Jews from Asia Minor in Jerusalem? Because remember, this is during the, the Feast of Pentecost, where just like in Acts 2, people from all, Jews from all around the world traveled into Pentecost during this time, including these Jews from Asia. Now, where had Paul just come from? Paul had just come from Asia Minor, from the city of Ephesus, where they had seen the gospel going forward. Some of the Jews violently came against him there as well. It's very likely that these are some of the same Jews who opposed him in Ephesus. And now they're opposing him here in Jerusalem. And they're basically saying, Paul is teaching against the law everywhere he's going, and he's showing it by bringing Greeks into the temple. Now, again, to us, this might not be that big of a deal, but, you know, if you were a Jew in the, time, in the first century or in the time of Jesus, you would know this. Gentiles were not allowed to go into the kind of inner court portions of the temple area. The way the temple was set up was that there was an outer court, um, the court of the Gentiles, and Gentiles could go there. But then there was a next court in, and that was the court of women, or the treasury, I believe is what it was called, the court of the treasury. Also, then inside there was the court of men, where the men could come in and worship. And then there was the court of priests in the center. And so the only place that Gentiles or Greeks were able to go was in that outer court. And in fact, they had these signs set up all around the outer court. They imagine like a railing going all around the outer court. And there were signs set up that were warning signs saying, hey, if you're a Gentile, don't go past this point. This is an example of one of these signs that was actually discovered by archaeologists in 1871. It is now uh, on display in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum. And here's what it says, right? Like, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his own ensuing death. They're not playing games. You're not a Jew. You come in here, you're going to die. And here's the thing. The Roman Empire literally let them practice that. They would kill people for crossing that boundary if they weren't a Jew. So here's Paul being accused of bringing this man named Trophimus, a Greek, one of his missionary partner friends. They're accusing him of bringing Trophimus in, but notice that in our narrative, Paul never did that. He didn't go in with Trophimus. He went in with four of the Jewish men from Jerusalem 
who were completing their Nazarite vow. And that would have been totally acceptable, of course, but Paul is being falsely accused. So let's see what happens next. Let's go on to verse 30. Verse 30 says, Then all the city was stirred up, and all the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and all at once the gate were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the Jews are dragging Paul out of the temple, man. They want to kill him until the tribune steps in. Now, the tribune is like a Roman military commander in charge of somewhere between 600 and 1,000 soldiers. He's responsible for keeping peace in the city. His soldiers are responsible for keeping peace in the city. And we find out later on in Acts chapter 23 that this tribune's name is Claudius Lysias. So Claudius Lysias shows up, stops the violence against Paul. Here's what happens next. Verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now stop right there because this is actually kind of a fulfillment here of the prophecy of Agabus that we read about last week in chapter 21, verse 11, where Agabus says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, right? And he took Paul's belt and he was holding it and, and he prophesied that Paul would be bound in Jerusalem. And I just want to tell you from this point forward in the book of Acts, uh, things are different for Paul. He, up till this point, has been free. He's been able to travel. He's been able to go where he felt like the Lord was calling him. Now, he is, to one degree or another, basically under arrest and held by the Roman government. And that's the way it's going to be for the rest of the book of Acts. Let's keep reading in verse 33. We'll see what happens with Paul and the tribune. It says that the tribune inquired who he was and what he had done. Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. So he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. You can imagine that scene, right? The mob of Jews is so angry, so violent that soldiers, right, in their Roman garb had to like protectively carry, pick Paul up and carry him through the crowds. They wanted Paul dead. They wanted him out of the city. Away with him is what they're saying. Claudius Lysias stepped in, provided the protection. On to verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? Which, by the way, like, Paul had such good manners. May I say something to you, sir? Like, his mama raised him right. Okay. And he said, okay, now this is the tribune responding to Paul. And the tribune said to Paul, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So what we see is that the tribune is caught off guard that Paul could speak Greek. He didn't know Paul was, he didn't really know Paul at all. He didn't know that Paul was an educated Jew. He didn't know Paul was a Roman citizen. In fact, he thinks Paul is some criminal from Egypt. Now, there's a first century historian named Josephus who wrote all about the historical events of the first century, especially those pertaining to the Jews. And he writes about this group of men. They were assassins who were known to be in the Jewish world at this time. And they went by the nickname of the dagger men, the dagger men. 
They would mingle in large crowds. And then when someone that they were supposed to kill would walk by, they would stab them or cut them. So those people would die. Well, around AD 54, an Egyptian man in this group of dagger men, he proclaimed that he was a prophet of God. He predicted that the walls of Jerusalem were going to be destroyed. And so the Roman soldiers didn't want this guy causing an uproar. And so they actually, the Roman soldiers attacked these dagger men and they killed most of them. But the Egyptian leader guy got away. And so now when we read about this in Acts 21, Claudius Lysias, he believes that Paul is this Egyptian dagger man who got away. Okay, that's what's going on here. On to verse 39. Paul replies and Paul says, uh, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, you got to come back to church next Sunday to find out, okay? <laughs> or you can just keep your Bible open and read the passage on your own, okay? But what you're going to see is that Paul has this opportunity to preach and to share his testimony and Phil's going to preach all about that next, next Sunday um, for us. But today, this is where we're going to end. And what I don't want you to miss is, is this. I don't want you to see that God was using Paul's painful path in order to make a ministry platform. This was a hard road Paul was walking. It wasn't just a hard road. There was controversy, public controversy going on. And God was using that in order to give Paul a ministry platform. He had just been on the temple floor. Now he's standing on the platform steps. He had just been beaten by the crowds. Now he's being protected by the soldiers. He had first been shouted down. Now he's quieted the crowds and Paul is about to preach because you know what God did here? God worked through Paul's pain and suffering and controversial situation in order to raise up a crowd of people who needed to hear the gospel. God is stirring up a crowd of people who needed to be saved. Because God often uses our painful path to make a ministry platform. Now, let me close with some takeaways for us. First takeaway, Christian in the room, prepare in advance for the painful path. Prepare in advance for the painful path. The Apostle Paul was following the Lord's call on his life. We read in previous passages that when God called Paul to go to Israel, God told Paul, this is going to be a hard road. Suffering is going to come your way. So when Paul chose to follow Jesus, Paul chose to walk the, pa the, the path of suffering. Isn't that what Jesus told us? When we follow him, we're going to have to deny ourselves, take up a cross and follow him. Jesus told his disciples, hey, in this world, you're not just going to have uh, health, wealth, and prosperity. You're going to have tribulations. They're going to come your way. The book of James tells us that we will experience trials of various kinds. I like how Peter writes it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter writes and he says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you as if something strange is happening to you. So church family, we've got to expect this. The Christian life will have both victories and difficulties. Sometimes there's going to be both going on at the same time. And you and I, as we follow Jesus, we must be prepared in our hearts for the road of suffering. So let me ask you a very specific question. 
What have you chosen to believe today that will help you when suffering comes tomorrow? What do you believe about God today? What do you believe about him allowing suffering? What do you believe about his sovereignty? What do you believe about his goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness? What do you believe about God today that will help you when suffering comes your way tomorrow? What are you going to teach your kids when they come to you and ask you, Mom and Dad, how could such a terrible thing happen to this person who loves the Lord? How could this person get cancer? How could this person die? Why do I get made fun of at school for my Christian beliefs? Why do we hear the news stories about Christians around the world who love Jesus, who are being killed and murdered and beheaded for the sake of the gospel? You need to be prepared today to walk through those situations yourself and to help other believers, whether in your children or elsewhere, to help them walk through it. Because here's the thing. If you don't know what you believe today before suffering comes your way, you're not going to know what to believe when suffering actually comes. You've got to believe today. So, what biblical principles will you stand on when life gets hard? Don't try to make that decision in the moment. One of the biblical principles that you can stand on is what we've talked about in our sermon today. You can know for sure, God often uses our painful path to give us a ministry platform. God may use the suffering that you're going through now or the suffering that you've had to endure in the past. God may use that to help you make him known in ways that you wouldn't be able to do had you never walked that road of suffering. So, second takeaway. Consider using your painful path as a ministry platform. Would you be willing, today, would you be willing to open your heart right now as we're coming to the end of this sermon, would you be willing to open your heart and say, Lord, how would you want me to use the things that I've walked through to help other people know you? Sometimes we wonder why God has us walk through the things we do. Why did God allow this to happen in my life? It's so hard. It's so difficult. Why? It's a good thing we have a Bible because God answered these questions for us. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4 says, God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we have ourselves received and are comforted by God. How'd you make it through your suffering? Through the comfort of God. How's the next person that's hurting going to make it through their suffering? Through the comfort of God. And they need to hear that God can do it from people like you who have walked the path. So I want to ask you to do something. I want you to think about the most difficult pain that the Lord has ever brought you through. As you reflect back on your life, what is the most difficult thing that the Lord has walked with you through? And then I want to ask you to consider, might the Lord be calling you to make a ministry out of that experience? Might the Lord be calling you to open up your heart 
Open up your life to other people who are walking through the same thing. The Lord didn't call you to follow Jesus just so you'd show up at church at a Sunday service. He called you to follow Jesus so that you can make Jesus known in the world. And one of the best ways that you can make him known is showing people that God can sustain you through the hardest times of their lives. How might the Lord be calling you to do it? We have people in our church who have walked through the pain of divorce and broken marriage. They're getting ready to start a care group in our church to help people walk through the pain of divorce and broken marriages. We have people in our church whose hearts break because their children are same-sex attracted. They've started a group for people in our church who are adults who have children dealing with the same thing. We have people in our church who have walked through the pain of infertility. And now they've started a group for other people in our church who are walking through it. We have people in our church who have walked through the pain of alcoholism, almost lost their lives and their families due to it, and now they help walk alongside other people in recovery. We have couples in our church who have experienced the pain of betrayal and infidelity, and now they lead groups and organizations to help couples heal, heal from it. The stories go on and on. Let me say it very simply to you. God may want to make your greatest ministry out of your deepest misery. God may want to make your greatest ministry out of your deepest misery. I had a girl come up to me after the first service and she said, earlier this year, I was uh, hospitalized because uh, my thoughts got so dark that I became suicidal. And the Lord has brought her through that. Now she wants to work, walk alongside other younger girls who are dealing with those things. Story after story like that. How might the Lord want to use you in ministry in this church, in this community, in our city to use your pain into a platform for his glory? Let me close with this third takeaway. And this is what it's all about really. Today I want to call you to remember Jesus whose painful path led to his greatest ministry. Jesus' greatest ministry is to die on the cross and save the world. There's nothing easy about that path to the cross. His painful path led to the salvation of all who would believe. So, remember Jesus today. He died on the cross. He walked the painful path for me and for you so that sinners like us could have our sins forgiven. Some of you in this room today may be thinking to yourself, I'm here at church today, but I don't, I don't feel right before God. I feel guilty in my heart all the time. Maybe that's because for you, you've never received the gift of salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. God offers you the gift of salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, the hope of eternal life with God. And in order to receive that gift, all you need to do is repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the scripture says you will be saved. So remember Jesus who walked the painful path for your salvation. Today we're going to remember Jesus in a very practical and tangible way. We're going to take the Lord's Supper today uh, to close out today's service. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come to various stations nearby you where we have um, bread and juice. 
And as you take the bread and juice, let's remember what these elements are all about. The, the bread represents Christ's body that was broken on Calvary's cross. The juice represents the blood of Christ that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins when he died there. In other words, when we come to the table today and we take the bread and the juice, you know what we're remembering? We're remembering Jesus's painful path. His painful path that leads to our salvation. So, the Lord's Supper is for believers, those who have trusted Christ. So, if you're a follower of Jesus today and you've trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and you've been saved, in just a moment, our ushers are going to dismiss you row by row and invite you to come to take the elements. And I just want to encourage you, believer, to do that. Yes, examine yourself. Examine your heart. Make sure your heart is right with the Lord. If it's not right with the Lord, don't come to the table flippantly. You know, we don't want to be disrespectful about the body and blood of Jesus. But I also want to say this. Come to the table like remembering God's grace that whatever sin you've been struggling with, the Lord Jesus already knew you were going to struggle with it and he went to the cross and died for that sin already. So it's been paid for by the blood of Christ. So remember God's grace and come to the table. But only come to the table if you've been saved. If you've never been saved, if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, you have two options today. Your first option, the best option, is for you to repent of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved today, and come to the table in a meaningful way for the first time. The other option, if you're not ready to be saved, and if you've chosen not to follow Christ, and you're not ready to do that today, then we just ask that when the ushers dismiss the people in your row, that you just stay in your seat and refrain from coming to the table. I promise you, nobody in our church will look down on you. Nobody will condemn you. We will actually appreciate the fact that you're being honest before God and respectful of this Christian tradition. Because this is for believers. Parents who have uh, children in the room, you need to be discerning about your children who are in the room with you. If they've trusted in Christ as Savior, then they are welcome to come to the table and take the bread and the juice. If they haven't yet trusted in Jesus, we ask that you have your kids refrain. But parents, this is a great opportunity to talk to your kids about Jesus and his broken body and shed blood for their sins. So be discerning with your children if you have them in the room. In just a minute, the ushers are going to dismiss you row by row. They'll instruct you to go to the table station that is closest to you. And after you take a piece of bread and after you take the cup, then just return to your seats. Have a moment of quiet reflection with the Lord. You can do that reflection prior to coming to the table or after. But when your heart is ready, you take the bread and you take the juice on your own volition. You don't need to wait for me to instruct you to do that. You just take it on your own volition when you're ready. And after we've made it through the line, we will close with some singing today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can open up your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his perfect life in our place. Thank you for his death as a substitute in our place. We praise you for the resurrection and the new life in Christ that we can share in a resurrection like his. 
We praise you for the Holy Spirit that you send to indwell in every one of us who believes. And Lord, I know that sometimes we come and we come into this room and we have grieved your Holy Spirit. We have quenched your Holy Spirit because of sin in our life. I pray that right now the power of the Holy Spirit may break through and speak strongly to some people in this room before we come to the table. I pray, Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit to speak powerfully to those who may be cloaking themselves in guilt and shame right now and that the power of the Holy Spirit would remind them of your grace. I pray, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit to comfort those in this room who have been walking down the painful path of suffering. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be a whispering voice in their ear, reminding them that you are with them through the suffering and that you are creating for them a a platform for ministry, even through their pain. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy toward us as sinners. We don't deserve it, but we are thankful for the cross and for the body and blood of Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.